Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com. This is episode number 296. Easy number to celebrate a women's soccer player with. That would have to be Christine Sinclair. She's sitting on 296 caps. She's closer to 300 than Carly Lloyd. Of course, it'll be interesting to see with the delay in international soccer games who will get to 300 first? There's only two other players, of course, with 300, but we'll mention them when we get to those episode numbers. So big, big episode this week to catch up for being lazy last week and not doing an episode. Um, but I've got a chat first with Iron Woman Katie Naughton of the Houston Dash. She talks about her experience at the Challenge Cup, particularly playing the final against her former team. And then a long chat with my buddy Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer. We look back at the semifinals and the final and give a few thoughts for NWSL moving forward and, of course, complain about things and throw out ideas and my usual long-winded chat with Dan. And then I wrap up the whole thing with a quick talk with our fearless Challenge Cup sideline reporter, Marissa Pilla, on her time in the bubble and on the field in Utah. In between those chats somewhere is a short Jen's planning segment. This week, I talk about why fans should think of CBS as an NWSL sponsor, just like Budweiser, Secret, Google, etc. Enjoy! All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with NWSL Challenge Cup champion, Katie Naughton. Katie, what does it feel like today, today, the day after you've flown back on a charter flight? And I, I can only imagine how many liquids have been consumed um, in the last 48 hours. But what are you feeling like right now? Right now, I am just so overwhelmed with the amount of love and support that we've gotten from the fans, from our family. And now to be back home out of the bubble <laughs> kind of feels surreal. Like uh, we landed yesterday and we're like, oh my God, we're actually going home. Like this is real. <laughs> and we won. Like <laughs> it was just everything combined just made it for, you know, such a great experience. And now to be back and kind of starting to settle back in feels very, very nice. Well, it's, I mean, it's easy when, you know, when there's something where you've just won, it lifts everybody's spirits. But I have to say, having witnessed you guys come off the plane and celebrating even you know, at that point, well, more than 24 hours after, <laughs> um, after the win, just, I, I don't remember ever seeing that level of camaraderie um, on the dash, not just with the players, but also the staff, the way that you guys were, um, you know, shouting out Paloma, the PR rep, you know, and <laughs> Carlos, Part of it and the assistant coaches is a part of it that it just it screamed team to me in a way that I really hadn't seen before yeah exactly I mean everyone was involved in our success in Utah and we realized that we wouldn't have made it as far as we did without their help and and their support and everything that we do and you know Carlos going on snack runs like every other day for us so that we can you know have something that isn't just the food we were we were given but um and then paloma just making sure that we look amazing in our media uh representation and stuff <laughs> like that. so so yeah it's like those little things really do matter especially when you're together for so long and 
we really bought into what James's game plan and ideas were, and, and the assistant coaches were great in following through and making sure that we were prepared with, you know, game footage and um, whatever we were doing at training that day. So it was like a full team experience. And then once we won, we were able to just kind of let loose and like celebrate each other and the win. So it was really, really special. Well, and this tournament, I mean, of course, this whole year is is so different from anything, you know, than we've mm-hmm. ever experienced. Um, what was this like for you as, as a player compared to any previous soccer experience, whether it was, you know, a youth national team camp or an NCAA tournament or, you know, preseason with Chicago? I mean, is there, is there anything that you can vaguely compare this to in terms of the, um, the course of the month? Yeah, I guess. Not really. <laughs> I think the closest <laughs> thing it would come to is um, like a, a youth national team camp or a holdover camp with like regional teams and stuff. But even then, like, you know, you're only there for a week or a week and a half. Whereas this, like you can't really mentally prepare for being somewhere other than home for a month and not being able to leave like that is so daunting. But when we got there, we, you know, it brought games, brought, our own snacks and stuff and made sure that we were keeping each other occupied and busy. And like, if someone was having a a down day or like, just didn't feel okay. Like they had the option to like go into their room and like chill, reverb, whatever. And then like come back and we were ready and welcoming with like, you know, ready arms so that they felt more comfortable and whatever the situation was. So it was just a really mental, mentally, physically and emotionally grinding month. But I think we obviously, found a way to come together when it mattered most and um yeah got the win <laughs> what was it like to have your own room on the road as opposed to normally it, it's it's two players to a room right yeah yeah I think that was massive like I said because sometimes you just need some alone time and just to regroup because you're around people constantly but um you know you don't have to worry about waking your roommate up or um, having to go to bed at a certain time because they're uh you know an early riser or, you know, all those different little factors that you might not think of. So it was really, really nice to have our own room and just kind of make it feel like a little piece of home, whatever that was for players. For me, like I brought an essential oil diffuser, <laughs> um, <laughs> just, you know, I don't know, make it feel a little more homey, but um, yeah. So it was a nice touch. Well, I had asked Jane Campbell a few weeks ago, you know, I was like, how many shoes did you bring? in utah you know since she's a shoe collector and she's like well uh-huh. i managed to just keep it to seven you know? I know. I like, what <laughs> but what what did you bring other than essential oils um <laughs> to help you pass the, t- the time like were there like books or games or or projects maybe that you brought with you yeah i did so i brought a bunch of different board games and card games so me and my friend brianna vasali on the team we played Bananagrams a lot, like every day. It's like, so just to kind of stay sharp mentally and like have some fun with it. And then um, we played uh, What Do You Mean a bit. Then the Canadian girls got me into Catan. <laughs> and Kathy is a Catan shark. Don't play Catan with her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we had some fun and we obviously, you know, got to know each other better because we were constantly with each other. So Definitely some new friendships were formed and old ones were bonded even closer. So that was really special too. 
And that's one of the things I was wondering about for all the teams where you've all been on lockdown, you couldn't see each other for like two plus months, and then you had very limited practices that slowly opened up, slowly opened up, and then boom, (laughs) you're all in jail together for five months. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I know, like before the tournament, I, I was saying, yeah, I was saying it's like I really think that whoever wins this will be whoever managed things well enough in the pre-tournament lockdown and then mm-hmm. you know in in utah it, itself because there were just so many variables but but let's talk right. about let's talk about the actual games especially knockout <laughs> round um yeah you know i've, I've tweeted this I, I put it in my my keeper note story today but i want to remind people that you guys set a new club record for consecutive minutes played without allowing a goal breaking a record that has been around since 2015 so, so this is huge to me. And, and I had this number ready to announce on the, on the broadcast. I was, you know, I was doing an international feed and, but I was so nervous, right? Like there is such a thing as the broadcaster's curse. Like, you know, if you say, yeah, they haven't been scored right. on in three years and then boom, they get scored on. So, I, so it was like, I finally got the nerve to say it. Yeah. And now the dash have passed that point. So they've now set a new record and you guys went the whole game without allowing a goal. So the record now stands at 300. And 44 minutes which is just awesome yeah. so so enjoy enjoy that make sure your other defenders know we set our you know three knockout games in a row without allowing a goal but tell me your memories of of those three games yeah so i mean obviously the pressure is on in the knockout rounds and people are gonna do everything that they can to make sure the other team doesn't get as many opportunities or um, chances on goal so I think we took that to heart and knowing the history of the dash with, um, you know, how their defense maybe maybe needs some work. So just taking that to heart and understanding that, you know, we're playing more for the city of Houston than for ourselves at some points because we owe, we owe it back to the city because they've allowed us to, you know, do our thing and, and represent them. So I think that was really the the main message that, strung through the tournament and we we took it to heart and made sure that we you know did our best to make everyone at home proud so to be able to not concede a goal in three games and set the the new record is honestly amazing and i know i can speak on behalf of all the other defenders and for the rest of the team and saying like thank you for the support because we wouldn't have been able to do that without without the fans and, and our friends and family back home well, I know for the, for the fans, it meant a lot to be able to send banners to Utah, um, sponsor, you know, coffee for a day at the, at the coffee cart. I, you know, I had so many people reaching out to me. How, how do I reach out to the coffee? I, I want to do something or what else yeah. can we do? Or can we send something, right? Because, you know, not being able to have the fans in the stands, not being able to have home games and everyone's just kind of craving that connection. Um, but what was it like to play games in front of an empty stadium did it did it send you back to like high school or you know early season college games or i mean it was, it was yeah, strange it was, to watch we did have the crowd noise the fake crowd noise right. what was it like for you right. guys i guess it was a little eerie at first um but once you, once we were in the games i honestly didn't really notice i think i was just you know focused on what the task was at hand but i i yeah. think that's to look up and not see anyone like not see like for me like my parents who've come to a ton of games was odd or not to see um 
you know, just other random staff or people, you know, it was just, it was different. But again, like we were able to adjust and I think we, we took advantage of the situation and made sure that we had more energy and kind of um, brought that to the, to the field. And I think the girls on, on the bench, on the sideline did an amazing job of keeping our spirits lifted and, you know, being those fans that we didn't necessarily have from the outside, but they were our fans right next to us. So that was really cool. And you were the only field player um, who played every single minute of the tournament, you know, all seven games, Jane being the only goalkeeper to play all seven games. Um, How was your body feeling? (laughs) Yeah. um, Might need to ask me that in like a week. (laughs) Not sure I can give you a really accurate (laughs) description right now, but um, I, I, my body is a little sore, but I think, talk on wood I didn't pick up any injuries or anything so hopefully if I just do the right things and you know get some recovery modalities going I'll be good but yeah it was definitely a lot in a short amount of time so I'm looking forward to some rest right now and then um, get back on the train once it starts moving again (laughs) one thing that really impressed me with the dash defense was rotation of of players that didn't seem to throw anybody off right and mm-hmm. and again you know historically dash haven't had the strongest defensive unit like definitely good players but not you know always staying together as, mm-hmm. as a unit so like you know oyster goes out with the rib injury and priceock has to come back at center or priceock being mm-hmm. played at outside back i remember seeing that lineup i'm like wow yeah. you know yeah. um you know, Aaron Simon playing on either side, you know, because of course mm-hmm. James is thinking about, you know, we got to rest legs, we got to rotate. Um, and then most of you being new to the dash playing in front of Gene mm-hmm. for the first time. So, you know, we, we saw a little nerves, I think towards the end of the, of, of the first game, but it seemed like after that, that uh, it was a pretty steady group. Talk about how, how that comes about. I mean, how, do, how do you guys work with each other to make that um, a really cohesive unit? Yeah, I think it honestly started in uh, preseason. So um, we would come together as a unit and we would do defensive drills, you know, specific to what we were working on that day. And we always made it a mission to make sure that we were communicating with each other, talking about each other's tendencies and what, you know, we like to do in certain situations so that we could read off each other and just building those relationships both on and off the field. Um, when we could. <laughs> so I think that really helped and obviously translated into us in the in the first round of the tournament and then obviously in the knockout stages. So yeah, we would kind of just have a task that we set our minds to each day at training. Um, I know for me and Megan Oyster, we talked almost every day, like, all right, we're going to work on this. We're going to focus on these things and, you know, kind of check those boxes as we, as they come. So we did that, and then obviously Jane is an integral part of all that, so she was involved and, and you know, sees things from a different perspective, so she was able to kind of tweak things here and there, and obviously it came together and worked really well, and hopefully we can carry it on into whatever comes next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to ask, what was it like to play the championship game against your former team? This was the first time for you to play against Chicago. And of course that's where you spent the previous four seasons of your NWSL career. So what was that like? Any like twinges of, of guilt or, or just nervousness or hi guys, you know, like, yeah. how does that work for a player? 
I think it was more excitement for me. I mean, obviously, I have really strong relationships with a bunch of girls on that team because I was there for so long. But um, I'm not going to lie to you. Like, winning that game was a lot sweeter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, it was really great to see the girls. And, you know, they they had a great tournament and they made it to the finals. But it it did feel pretty good to to come out on top at the end. Well, and I knew it would be a really close game. And and when you think about it, that it's like the first goal was a penalty. There wasn't mm-hmm. another goal for stoppage of the second half. And that one really came about because, of course, Chicago was pressing up because they had to press up. Yeah. They were going to get the yeah. equalizer. And, uh, you know, we were talking in the broadcast studios. Usually before a game, it's like, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? And, and all of us for this one was like, I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> this, would be, this would be like, a one goal game, you know, like, like mm-hmm. we were all really just praying that it wouldn't be scoreless and go to penalties, like the quarterfinals. Right. <laughs> um, right. It oh was God. just like, I, I was really pleased uh, to have a, a final like that, to have two finalists like that, that we knew would, would really come out and, and try to attack. Right. Like no one was going to yeah. be just sitting back to try to get, yeah. to get a draw. Well, talk about those final few minutes and, and then, what it felt like to hear that whistle blow. And then you have to explain uh, the cheer uh, that James <laughs> led in the locker room. But first, talk talk about uh, the moment that the whistle blew. Yeah. So leading up to that point, obviously, like, it was coming down to the wire and it's still 1-0. Um, and like you said, Chicago was pushing everyone forward, it felt like. So we were just trying to stay calm and compact and make sure that we were clearing balls out and, you know, just locking it down on defense. Um, and then, oh, my gosh. Shay, our saving grace, <laughs> comes up big and, you know, scores the second one and kind of, you know, puts the, the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And a couple minutes later, the whistle blows and I just threw my hands up in the air and I felt a wave of relief, a wave of excitement and just an overall happy feeling, you know, like I don't, there's really no words that can describe that, but if you've been there, you know. So, um, yeah, it was amazing that obviously we all celebrated and, got up on the podium and looked at the trophy up, which was awesome. And then we go back into the locker room. It was like a Budweiser locker room. They had all the the fun um, plastic up so that we could, you know, really get reckless. And um, <laughs> um, we're, you know, spraying Budweiser beer around and drinking and it was fun. And then James, our head coach, she comes in and we think he's going to have a speech, you know, congratulations, all that kind of stuff. But Nope, he surprises us. He's like, all right, repeat after me. And he starts singing this song that none of us have ever heard before. And it's like... And it's basically listing Indian food dishes. Yeah, yeah. You're, we're like talking like, chicka, chicka, tikka. Like, okay, okay. We're, so we're just repeating him. And he's like, yeah. all right, it can't, be, it can't start too loud. So we obviously started too loud. Had to start over. And then, um, yeah, it was just... it was mayhem because then at the end obviously everyone's just screaming and throwing stuff and it was ridiculous but we have no idea where that came from because he's never done that with us before (laughs) um but then yesterday when we were flying home he started it again on the plane over the intercom so uh, it might be a new thing we don't know but i guess it's like a 30 year old tradition for him back home in england and all of his buddies back home were really excited that he has continued the tradition on. So, oh, that, that's right. Because I, I did spend some time googling like 
samosa soccer chant (laughs) chant, and was not getting anything. I was like, okay, James is just going to have to tell me what this is from. But I, I love that it was so unusual and so unknown that it's like, maybe that's something that the dash can just make their own. Right. And now, now, now you need an Indian restaurant sponsor. Right. (laughs) I carry all of those dishes. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, last question, last question for you, Katie. I know we talked uh, a few months ago when you had really just gotten to Houston and things were just being locked down, but uh, you know, sense of being on this team now, sense of, of, of this city, just a, a, a final few thoughts. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm so glad that I wound up in Houston and, like I said, like the fans have been tremendous. They have supported us in the bubble, outside of the bubble, you know, getting us coffee, getting us meals, um, sending us awesome little, you know, good luck messages. And it's been tremendous. And I am so happy. And the team itself, like the girls, the coaching staff, the support staff, everyone has been so welcoming and so, um, you know, understanding of the circumstances that we were in. And it just, it feels so good to finally feel like you belong somewhere and like you can actually make a difference. So I'm just so grateful and I can't wait for whatever the next steps are with the dash, because I think it'll be really, really positive. Well, Katie, congrats on the tournament. Congrats on surviving every single minute of the tournament. <laughs> um, I hope you give your body a lot of rest and enjoy all the dash accolades because you guys deserve them. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate that. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with my partner in soccer complaining, or rather it's soccer critiquing, soccer analyzing. And of course, that would be Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer. Dan, how do you you want to title yourself? Um, Just Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer Works. (laughs) But I'd like to say that um, that was a very David Letterman-like opening in the sense that when I went to see Letterman, he does this little... Q&A with the audience and there's like five seconds until he's on and he's still talking and then when it gets down to one he just snaps into attention and we were doing our little chit chat and then all of a sudden I heard the little voice say we were recording and boom you were going right into the podcast <laughs> so that's impressive well, after- I can tell you've been on the air constantly for the last month I was going to say, after a month of calling games, like, I have never felt more confident in front of a mic. Um, It's so different from last season where maybe I would hit Florida a couple times before the World Cup and then several times after the World Cup, but never for an extended period. But then here, like, basically every three or four days calling four games in two days. And Go ahead. Even though the schedule was brutal, and I'm sure it was worse for you, there was not this thing where you did the 7 o'clock game, and then it ends at 9.02 when you're on the air again getting ready for the game at 10. And you end up, by right. the end of that, you don't even know what game you're doing or what city the game is in that you're doing. Yeah, it was nice to like breathe between games, but I think the hardest thing was when we'd have... Um, on East Coast time, a 12.30 and then a 10 o'clock game, so you're done by like 12.30 a.m. to turn around for the next morning games. That was what I found to be the hardest part. you know. And of course, on top of this, I'm trying to keep on top of all the stats, but it was such a different 
feeling than last season, especially that it's one condensed tournament. I felt like we were as much calling the games as we were telling the story of the tournament. And the one game where I had to start the game by myself uh, because Mike Watts was rolling off a USL game that had been had a, had a weather delay. Um, I wasn't stressed at all because I was like, I've seen all these teams play already several times. I know all these players. I have all the stats in my head. I can do this. Where I think yeah. if it had been, I just come in for a weekend, they'd be like, hey, Jen, you're calling this game by yourself. I, <laughs> I, would, I would run screaming from the building. You know, the first game I ever did, there was a chance of a weather delay. I forget the exact details, but there was some scenario where I was going to have to call all or part of the game by myself. I was secretly kind of hoping it would happen, but probably it was better off that it didn't. I I was thinking, I was like, I could definitely babble to fill a lot of time, but at the same time telling myself babbling isn't necessarily what you need when people are watching a soccer game. Yeah, and you know I didn't get to listen to you and Josh for most of the games, but I give Mike Watts a lot of credit because you could tell knowing him a little bit personally and listening to a lot of games when the ball went into the sun in the night games that he had no idea who had the ball but he did a very good job of kind of talking over that I thought because yeah. that sun field was pretty brutal for like the first 15 minutes of those night games and I guess, I guess it never gets cloudy in Utah because it was every single day well the one cloudy game the one cloudy game the first game, game was cloudy what? oh but no but the, the first semifinal you know, in the Rio Tinto, I was like, oh, my God, even if we had glare, you wouldn't know because. Oh, right. Because there's actually a building stands there. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was an interesting experience. And, and I, I really enjoyed this tournament. Um, but before we get into talking about the tournament and if it should be repeated, let's let's look back at both semifinals and the final. Um, were you surprised with the four that ended up? in the semis. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in a short tournament format, but your thoughts on the four that made it there. Well, obviously North Carolina was the best team in the tournament. I think we would all agree with that. They were the best team in the game that they lost to the Thorns. So I don't think you could, I don't think anybody can really honestly say, tell me that they thought the courage would lose in the quarterfinals, especially after going four and Oh, I honestly, I thought the other teams were all kind of the same. You know, everybody was struggling to score. You know, most of the players that opted out or got hurt were attacking players. So it's not a big surprise. But I thought everybody was just kind of trying to feel their way. So I wasn't surprised by any of the other quarterfinal results. I wasn't surprised by any specific team being there or not being there. You know, maybe Washington uh, should have been there, but when they got to the quarters and they didn't have Lavelle and they didn't have Sullivan, that was a pretty significant problem. And I yes. think they were kind of at that point on even terms, although they did outplay Sky Blue in that quarterfinal. But I don't think, you know, I think if you watch that Courage Thorns quarterfinal, they play that game a hundred times. I think the Courage win 90 times and maybe there's five draws. I, did, I mean, that's not the way I felt about the spirit and Sky Blue. So I thought it was a pretty cool group of four. I I thought it was cool that, um, you know, you had the Dash and Sky Blue in there who really don't have a good history in the league and the Red Stars and Thorns that have a better history. Uh, so I was I was pleased with it. I thought it was interesting the way the brackets fell because, of course, this couldn't be controlled. But one side of the bracket was 
teams connected with an MLS or a USL team, and the other side of the bracket was the four independents. Uh, you I know, and so in the that sem- angle. yeah. So in the semifinal, we had MLS versus MLS team, basically your first two MLS affiliated teams in league history, and then you had two teams who were independents that were both part of WPS facing off. Yeah, it's a good call. So it, it, I, I brought that up in the final of just like, wow, it's kind of, you know, the two different kind of teams, you know, and and also, of course, you know, Houston having no playoff background, Chicago having really the most playoff background of any of, of the, the current clubs. I and I was really relieved, I'm sure, as we all were, that there were plenty of goals in the semifinals. Those quarterfinals were pretty brutal. And the more I talked to. Uh, people from the dash as they've returned to Houston, the more I understand that I think quarter, the quarterfinal era was when people were really hitting the wall mentally, kind of either the the last game of the first round or the quarterfinals. Um, I heard from the dash that once it was down to four teams, there was a hotel change. They condensed everybody to one property. And, you know, they, they said that that, really helped them kind of renew the player spirits in terms of, you know, change of venue, new room, new view, new food, just different, you know, because because we know how limited they were. They couldn't really leave the hotel. Um, There's only so much you can entertain yourself, right? Um, You're not practicing all day, right? You have a specific practice period. And then, you know, so I, it's interesting I think Equalizer wrote about it, how this bubble is different from like a World Cup bubble where you're protecting the players from social media and the press and stuff like that. But they can still leave the hotel and go see their parents or leave the hotel and go get coffee or walk around Paris. Here, you really are quarantined. Yeah, and the quarterfinals, let's be honest, the quarterfinals were tough to take. And you broadcast all the games. I did podcast segments after all 23 games. And the way we did it with Equalizer was we would have the early game, we would talk about it, and then we would record the second part after the fact. And the night games were interesting because there were some of the night games where you're all fired up and you're like, all right, let's go, let's do this podcast. There's other night games where it's the 80th minute and you're sitting there like, I really hope the person doing the podcast with me has something to say about this game because I really don't have anything to say about it. And the quarter, I don't know what's more challenging, calling the games with no goals or trying to break them down afterwards when there's no goals. And I don't, you know, zero zero draws are fine with me. I think they're I mean, you know, they're part of the game. They I've did. seen great zeros in games, but those games were hard to take. But they they, they did get better. Once once the Dash scored in that semifinal, because that one got, what was that, the 69th, 70th minute? Yeah. That was when you're yeah. like, well, we're not going to get any more goals the rest of this tournament, are we? But once that <laughs> happened, it was okay. Yeah, I mean, sometimes 0-0 zero, zero can be really exciting. And even, you know, 1-0, as we saw with the Portland-North Carolina quarterfinal or the Dash quarterfinal against Portland 1-0 can yep. be a pretty tense match you know so one and the final, that, was, the final and basically like, one nothing yeah yeah and I've mentioned that with people too it's like usually, usually before each game you know we'd be chattering with the production crew it's like what do you think the score is going to be who do you think is going to pull it off you know throughout the tournament and for the final we we're like I don't know this is too close to call um I mean I really felt like it was going to be a one goal game and in a sense, it, it was, right? Like, it was only well, that PK. Tact- and Groom right. only gets that goal because 
Chicago was completely pressed up trying to get an equalizer. Right. I mean, tactically, it was a one nothing game. They held on to the lead for 85 minutes or 86 minutes, right. whatever right. it was. You know, but I thought, honestly, going into that final, I thought that people were leaning toward the Red Stars because they had bigger name players and because they had the pedigree. But I think if you watch the tournament every game, I don't think there was any question the Dash were the better team compared to the Red Stars throughout the course of the tournament. That didn't mean they were going to win, but I didn't see anything in the final that surprised me that the Dash did or that the Red Stars didn't do that allowed the Dash to win. So I don't believe it was an upset. You know, maybe if we had the full-on gambling on this league that maybe we're kind of getting slowly towards, then maybe it would have been technically an upset with the gamblers. But I thought the Dash were better than the Red Stars, with the exception of the first... 20 minutes in the last 10 minutes against Utah, and they didn't play well against Sky Blue, but that happens. I thought yeah. the Dash were better than, than the Red Stars in this tournament. One of the things I noticed, because you know, I'm always looking at the numbers and looking for patterns and, and trends, defensively, the Dash improved once they got past that Sky Blue game, right? They only allowed one goal after that Sky Blue game and went the entire knockout round without allowing a goal Chicago started off really strong defensively right once they got past you know, the first game but it's like had what two scoreless draws I think in the no uh, one, one scoreless draw. Really one tight, Portland and tight. one in the quarterfinals yeah and then a 1-0 win over Utah so defensively they were playing really well didn't really find their offensive footing until that explosion right in in the semifinal so I was thinking this is going to be a great battle between Chicago's offense especially that you had three different goal scorers in the semifinal um, coming against the defense that really got it together um, especially with you know the leadership of Katie Naughton who played every single minute Megan Oyster oh my god what a badass coming on to play you know, with a protective vest. And when um, she got knocked know. down in like the 85th minute, I forget who knocked her down on the corner kick. You could just yeah. like, you could feel your own ribs like cracking inside. Like, <laughs> like thank yeah. goodness that didn't happen till the 85th minute, right? What worried me about uh, Chicago was seeing them allow two goals late in the semifinal. Of course, one was an own goal, which was a very accidental deflection off of Julie Ertz, but still like it, that, but they that, were totally to, stretched out on that play. Yeah. That, to me, was the only hint that there might be um, a way for the, the dash to break in. Um, and I totally – tell me if you agree with me or not, but I feel like it's not – I don't think you can say, well, um, Chicago is missing, you know, Tierna Davison and Casey Short and Morgan Bryan. It's like, well, they didn't – they haven't had a, a lot of Morgan Bryan in their past – Right, I would say Casey Short's probably your biggest, you know, missing piece. But well, you know, my thing, counter, my counter to that was you. The Dash have had no U.S. allocated players. So. Well, the thing about Short though is that in the maybe Sky Blue wasn't ready for her not to be in the lineup because I don't think anybody knew until the lineup came out. But I thought yeah. it took Sky Blue way too long to figure out 
like, hey, we've got Zoe Goralski on the outside here, not Casey Short. Maybe we can win that battle. And that was the battle they finally exposed when they had the when they beat Goralski and crossed it in and it went off Ertz for the yes. own goal. And the interesting thing was that the dash took advantage of that immediately. It was Sharples and not Goralski in the final, but the dash went into that space immediately and created a goal in the first five minutes. So I wonder if Sky Blue had I'm not going to say they didn't realize it, but had they been able to expose it quicker in the semifinal, if maybe that game would have gone a different way. I agree about Morgan Gautreau, Morgan Bryan. But the interesting thing is that the two goals they scored before the semi were Gautreau and Casey Short. Not, and neither right. one of them were in the lineups. They went into the semifinals with no dressed players that had scored in the entire tournament. I, I said that on our broadcast, and that's why I was kind of thrilled to see Oh, great. You know, Rachel Hill gets a goal. McCaskill gets a goal. St. George yeah. gets a goal. And I was like, I was like great. They're finding, finding new ways to score. And, and of course, McCaskill came very, very, very close to getting an equalizer against Houston in the first half of the final, right? Just that was really the moment. The- that goes in. It's probably 1 1 at halftime, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then that's a totally different game. But. Other than that, I mean, the dash, when were the Dash ever in trouble? There was actually one play where the Red Stars got a free kick where I thought Oyster, I think Oyster committed the foul, and she kind of went in, and I was like, that might have been a little compensation for the ribs right there. It was the only time in the game that I thought maybe the ribs came into play. But where the Dash were not up against it, they defended so well in this tournament. And on that Sky Blue game you mentioned when they got beat, I spoke to Christy Mewis for a story, and this didn't make the story. I spoke to her maybe the next day or two days later, and she said they kept baiting us to put the ball in a certain spot, and we kept doing it, and then turning it over. So I think that was more of what they did that got them in trouble against Sky Blue as opposed to not defending well. Because I was really impressed with how the Dash defended and how the Dash defense never panicked. They passed the ball out of pressure the entire tournament, and they did it effectively, and they didn't stop doing it late against the Thorns with a one-goal lead, and they didn't stop doing it late against the Red Stars with a one-goal lead. And consider that Oyster and Naughton are the center backs are both brand new to the team. That's extremely impressive by that defense and James Clarkson to get them to play that way in just seven games. And Aaron Simon to drop in another new player. Ali Prysock to have to move from center to outside for one of the games. Haley Hansen dropping back to play outside again, but you can see how having played it last year paid off. Uh, and for me, really, other than Rachel Daly, the, the dash player of the tournament for me would be Sophie Schmidt. Um, just the, the defensive work that she did in front of that back line, just a very kind of calm leader, uh, you know, a veteran calming presence. I, I hate that I keep saying calm, but it's, it's like that. That's something, um, you know, I, I really can't remember seeing with the dash before, like, like, said, you know, pass, passing out from the back under pressure, like not panicking. Yep, and you know when she stepped up to take that penalty in the final, it was going through my mind like, wow, the Dash have missed so many big penalties yes, over the years. Yes. Remember when they first started and they couldn't score at home and they missed at least two penalties yes. in yes. that stretch, and it's like, oh my goodness, but cool, calm, and collected and made it. I thought Mewis, and I'm guilty with Mewis of saying for years she was a wide player. Well, guess what? She doesn't need to be a wide player. She's pretty darn good 
in the center of the park also. I thought Mewis was great. And I didn't think Groom was the player of the tournament necessarily, but isn't it nice to see Shea Groom back to being the Shea Groom from FC Kansas City where there's a collision, there's a player down, it's most likely Shea Groom, but she's most likely going to be okay. But, I mean, she will literally, between her and Rachel Daly, like her and Rachel Daly coming at each other at full speed would not end well because neither one of them would give an inch. But it was really nice to see Shea Groom, you know, back to being the old Shea Groom, and hopefully she can uh, be that way now for the rest of her career. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, could it have taken the dash any longer to sign Aggie? Um you know, that's something, that's something that G. Guerreri, the coach of Texas A&M, has been teasing all of the Dash coaches for years. Like, there's plenty of Aggies in the league. Why aren't you signing one? You know, if for no other reason than, you know, the marketing. And, and I teased Shea Groom about that yesterday. I said, finally, there's an Aggie, though we both looked at each other and said, well, technically, Allie Bailey from 2015. <laughs> Well, that she, was an amateur player. <laughs> she scored, though. She scored a goal at your sack against Sky Blue. Yeah. And that's also, you know, it's not only the marketing, but, you know, as Rory Dames has taught us, there's like a probably 150 times better chance that a local player hangs around as a developmental, in a developmental role and eventually yeah. earns her way onto your team than a player that's got to be 2,000 miles away from home. And that's been, part, you know, part of the reason the Red Stars have been so good is that they have developed local players. Like, I mean, obviously they have to be good enough to begin with, but, you know, in a league where you're not making a lot of money, if you can get players to stick around to be your practice players and they can be, quote, unquote, at home, that's invaluable. Like we saw with Kayla Sharples and, and Hannah Davidson, they talked about exactly. you know, the soccer. And I know that's something that James Clarkson has focused on since he took over. You know, that's why he reached out to Satara Murray before the 2019 season. Like, here's a player who's been playing at a high level who has family in Texas. Same for Lindsey Harris, one of the backup keepers this year, born in Houston, grew up in Austin, right? And there's, frankly, there's not a lot of people, not a lot of female players that have come out of the Houston area and have done well on the national level, at least not in the current generation, right? You can go way back to the 90s and find a few. Um, and I know that that's something that James is very cognizant of and is trying to do more with the Dash Academy. Like uh, last year, he had some of their older high school players come train with the Dash so they could get exposed to that. You know, making sure that preseason they're inviting some local college players in, just, you know, building those connections with U of H, Rice, UT, AM, et cetera. Because, you know, since you don't have a club like Chicago has the great Eclipse Youth Soccer Club, you don't have something quite that strong here. It's like whatever other connections you can, you can build so that you are constantly developing. And James, more than anyone else, um, I, I think in, in the Houston organization understands that as the person who launched Houston Dynamo's Youth Academy in 2007, when MLS said, every club, you have to have a youth academy. And, but by investing in this academy, it means if you sign anyone out of that academy, they don't count against your roster, you know, like all, all of that, all of that stuff. And we know that that's um, a growth step for NWSL that is in the future is not, not in the near future, right? There's a lot of other things that need to be done, but that would be something down the line you would hope would happen. I remember people asking me 2007, 2008, they're like, it's not fair that Dynamo don't have a girls Academy. And I tried to explain where would they go? 
Right. You know, 2000, 2008, there was no prolate, but like, what are you developing them for? It's like the only reason they're doing this boys Academy is because the league told them to, <laughs> because it's because they, you know, they had to, right? Like they wasn't, Hey, let's do a boys Academy. It's like, we are forced to, you know, so. Absolutely. And I think, before, I think we that's finish, before we finish on the dash, I just want to mention Brie Vasali, who I don't think has gotten enough attention. And I've been guilty of that through the tournament, but I think anytime she's been on the field, they've looked better that when she's been off the field, another high-energy player makes the right decisions, makes good runs off the ball. And I, What's that? Tough player like Ruman Daly, too, takes a hit, keeps on going. Absolutely. And I think her and Rachel Daly might be the new Megan Rapinoe, Jess Fishlock, when they had the same exact hairdo and you couldn't tell them apart. Because (laughs) I could never tell on the wide shot. I struggled to tell the difference between Daly and Vasali. Because like you said, they play similar, as well as the fact that their hair kind of looks the same from afar. They're kind of have the same same build. Daly's got the headband and whatnot when you get up close and... Plus, she's got that magnetic hair. When she would line up for the free kicks, like she would have like seven or eight strands and like waving around, like it was a magnetic field around her head. But I love it when players stick with like the same hairband color for an extended period. So you're like, all right, Megan Oyster, always the one with the blue exactly. hair. Exactly. Except you for uh, Brittany. Except for Brittany Ratcliffe, who changes colors, but it's so distinct, it doesn't matter. I thought she was always orange. Well, I believe when she was in Boston, there were some different colors. I don't. I don't uh, think it's like the Brittany Ratcliffe color. I think it matters what she's, you know, the uniform she's wearing or whatnot. But but it's distinct regardless of what color it is. Yeah, you can always tell her from her teammates. Well, let's talk about the tournament. Um, you know, you had a great uh, Laletta lowdown today about you know that the tournament worked and of course we had no positive covid results coming from actually in utah um i really want to see this tournament again obviously you can't do what we did this summer and go okay all these people have to go to this one place for five plus weeks and and make this happen but i do think the league can have something like this in the future even if it's not every year my, my idea, and, and you can poo-poo it as much as you like what, once I finish describing it, is when we have that window for the Women's World Cup and the window for the Olympics, which we know we'll have at least two out of every four years, um, in that window, you don't have any regular season games. That's when you have a little tournament like this. You have a first round that's only uh, three games in the first round. So you have t- groups of four and if that means you invite one or two extra teams so that you have three groups of four, so, you know, 12-team tournament, you know, and then only, what, like six advance or four advance, you know, so, so it's, 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 it's a little bit smaller, but it's the same concept. So that you have something that can maybe pull um, some of the momentum from World Cup and Olympic windows you're not having regular season games that count against your standings without your big name players. You're not trying to sell tickets when you don't have your big name players. Um, and you just schedule it. So it fills in the holes around um, the women's world cup and, and Olympics, but regardless think- of the format, something they need to do again. There's some validity to that. I've been saying for years that you take a couple of weeks a year, maybe the FIFA weeks, 
and you send four teams to one location, four teams to another location, and you play a Wednesday, Saturday, or a Thursday, Sunday, and the losers of Thursday go home, and that's and that's kind of like your Open Cup. And maybe, you know, if you do it at Open Cup style, and you know, look, the Open Cup is run by U.S. Soccer, so this is not an NWSL thing, but you know, maybe I don't know if they can invite other leagues into their own tournament or not. But you know, that's how you would kind of build it up, and you could go to you know Portland if you wanted to, or you could go to a completely new market that is just someone that might turn up for a Thursday, Sunday, and it wouldn't matter if there were 10,000 people or 100 people. Uh, but my question about your format is, with a regular season, why would you need a group stage? Why not just go straight to a knockout tournament? Uh, well, I guess if you... Because this would all be done in one place. This would, Again, I'm envisioning like the going somewhere, like we did for Utah or like College World Series does for um, does in Omaha, right? I would want to make sure you got at least a couple of games out of it, that you don't do that whole travel for one game and and come back. Where kind of fair, no but at the same time, it's not, it wouldn't be a bubble type thing where you'd have to, I mean, it wouldn't be as much work no, to get there. And hopefully no, we get back no. to that reality. But I, also, I also see it as, you know, what we saw some teams use this tournament for in terms of the player development where, okay, here is where you can bring in some of those developmental players that never get minutes, right? Sign a few NTRs and, you know, and you make sure it's, you allow for the, yeah, it can be up to five subs per game so that teams can get more out of it. Where I think if it's just one game, you don't, you don't get as much, but I think if you just do, instead of doing four games, quarterfinal, semifinal, you do three games in the first round, having three groups of four teams, straight to semis and then a final so that it's maybe not even three weeks long. Right. Um, but some, something, something like that. It, it's also an opportunity to, uh, like we've seen with women's international champions cup, bring in uh, a team from elsewhere, whether it's Mexico, France, Japan, Korea, Australia, well, I guess they probably wouldn't be in season, but you know what I mean? I just think there's so much potential for it. I hope it's something that's high on Lisa Baird's list of we have to, you know, we have to t- do something with this to keep take advantage of everything it's brought the league. Well, I can't help but hear her saying the winners of the first NWSL Challenge Cup. So maybe that was a slip of the tongue, but hopefully there are plans in the, to do something else in the future because the tournament was – too good. And you know what? I didn't miss the star players. I mean, I missed the goals that players like Rapino and Press and Lloyd and Morgan and whatnot would have provided, but I didn't specifically miss the star players. Like, I felt comfortable that these were the players on these teams. You know, I was used to them. Certainly by the end of the tournament, I was used to the players I wasn't familiar with. And, you know, I'm kind of fine with it. And I think they did a really good job you know, at least on the CBS All Access streams of not making a big deal about the players that weren't there. And I I almost feel like there might have been a little bit of a new audience cultivated that is not just watching for those particular phases. And I hope that's true. And I hope they're back, but I didn't specifically miss them. Well, I feel like it's it's the, the place that the league needed to get to, whether they realized it or not, of – you can actually market a league not based strictly on having World Cup champions. I mean, I remember hearing that, you know, in the past, of what if we don't win the World Cup? What will we do? I'm like, oh, my God, if the success of this league is predicated strictly on we have to win the World Cup every four years, that's not a really strong business model. 
Um, and I like, I like the concept of world champs made in the NWSL. You know, we know that there are players on the 2019 team who never would have had an opportunity to be there had it not been for the NWSL. So here was another Absolutely. opportunity, especially with Vlad Kononovsky in the stands, to say, hey, let me show you what I can do. I, I thought we had a pretty strong draft class this year, and it was great to see so many of them get minutes. And look at Major League Soccer and how far they've come. And the U.S. men have never been past the quarterfinals, and that happened one time. Now, would the league have been better off with, if the men were in Russia? Sure. But they've also added how many expansion teams since that time. Too many and they're all paying nine figures to get into the league. So it's, you know, it's not based on whether the U.S. wins the World Cup. But what needs to happen in the NWSL, and maybe this started it, is that you've got to have loyalty to the club. And not we've yeah. talked about this a million times. You got to have loyalty to club, not loyalty to player. You have to be like, all right, I am a Dash fan, and this was wonderful. I don't care if they have an internet, if they have U.S. World Cup champions or not. We have got Rachel Daly and Christy Mewis and Shea Groom, and if we don't have them, I'll root for whoever comes in after them. But I'm rooting yeah. for the Houston Dash, and I'm not gonna. I'm going to wear my Julie Ertz jersey to a game when the Red Stars come because I'm a Dash fan. When Ertz plays for the U.S., fine, I'll pull for Julie Ertz. But if she's on the Red Stars, right. then she's the enemy. That's right. okay. Right. right. And and that's what reminds me of uh, the first time that Kristen Press played in Houston several months after she had chosen not to join the club. I thought it was so brilliant how the fans – the hardcore Dash fans, they booed her every time they touched the ball, but there were yeah, no obscenity. Great. There were no obnoxious po- posters. She laughed, and at the end, they all asked for her autograph, and she happily signed them, right? And no one ever booed for her again after that. It was just a, like, hey, we want to acknowledge that you dissed our city, but okay, now we'll watch you play, right? Like, yeah. that was, to me, was the perfect balance. Absolutely. Well, since you did mention expansion... I can, uh, I can, you know, we can end this with just your really quick thoughts on where Louisville is right now in your head, and and what do you think about Angel City FC? Well, Louisville seems to be doing most of the things that we were hoping they would do by getting into the league early. Now, nobody thought that there would be a worldwide virus that would slow them down <laughs> at the time that happened, but you know, they've got their branding in place. Pretty early on, they would have had season tickets on sale by now, but they decided to pull that back a little bit and wait for some other developments. I think they might have had a coach in place by now, but I think the coach is coming soon. They just built a huge training facility. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, and I've been told in no uncertain terms that it is exactly the same for the men and the women in this training facility. Um, You know, it's not going to be open until the spring, so we'll see how that plays out. You know, it's easy to talk about it. It's a lot harder to execute it. Um, But Louisville seems to be doing fine. And, you know, the ironic thing about Angel City, I think the Angel City thing seems fantastic. I mean, let's see what happens when, you know, they're a lot farther out than Louisville. Right. For years, we were like, all right, LAFC is going to start this women's team and Mia Hamm is And I never bought into the fact that, well, Mia Hamm is at LAFC, so they're going to start a women's team. Like Mia Hamm to the LAFC ownership group, I don't know the analogy to make, but she is a very small part of that ownership yeah. group, right, with LAFC. But anyway, control their finances, no. <laughs> exactly. Um, so everyone thought, all right, LAFC and maybe the Galaxy will jump back in. 
and then all of a sudden it's a group that has nothing to do with either team, but they're like, all right, we're not LAFC. We're going to pretend we're LAFC. We're going to get every celebrity in Los Angeles who's not involved in LAFC, and we're going to put them <laughs> on our ownership team. So, And we talked about this off air. As long as they – as long as they figure out who's in charge and who's making the decisions and that, and that's the person that's making the correct decisions, I think the sky's the limit. I think this is the club that could start to turn things around, right? In MLS, I guess Toronto and Seattle were the two teams, right, which is right after Beckham came. Those were the two right. teams where it's like, wait a minute, we can there, there can be MLS teams that sell out every game? Like, this yes. is pretty cool. And all the Sounders didn't sell out, but they drew more people than anybody else in the huge soccer and the football stadium they play in. I think this is that team. You know, we've all been talking about how Portland is this anomaly. I think this is the team that can maybe prove that places outside of Portland can also do it. Especially long, with long that, that many big names. Just that many big names behind them. To me, it's like... It's not the financial commitment from the former national team players who obviously wouldn't have the funds that Ohanian or Serena Williams or Natalie Portman would, but that they're clearly committing publicly to being accessible to the media, to being a face for the team, to spreading the word about the team however, we, however they can. And I think in some ways that's what we've been, been missing. Right, and as soon as they were announced, they were all over Twitter supporting the rest of the tournament. And by the way, let's give the Orlando Pride a lot of credit, and I probably should have mentioned this in my column, for staying as engaged as they did during the tournament after they had to drop out because of the COVID positives. So let's give the Pride a lot of credit for that. Um, And I had another point that, as usual, we've been doing, we've been on for too long, so I lost Okay, well then, then we'll probably wrap it up. I here, lost then. my point. Uh, it's a very well, poor ending. Got to get me, got to get me out of here on a positive note. Give me one more topic. Okay, well here, here are all the things that you and I are going to have to discuss in the future because even though we don't have any live NWSL soccer on the horizon right now, we've got to figure out well how does expansion for Louisville work, especially whether or not there's a regular season. How does the draft order work? Then what happens with LA and Sam Mewis signing? With Man City, does that mean that North Carolina has to protect her if they want to have her when she comes back, you know, in the expansion draft? Who is the Louisville coach going to be? Um, when do the U.S. women national team players play again? There's there's so much, right? See, I you think... Go on hours. And what I was going to say before it came back to me was that you've got every other sports league in the country is essentially scrambling, and the NWSL announced a high-profile expansion team while they were in their bubble with no COVID positives during the middle of the pandemic. So I think that's pretty extraordinary and something that should be celebrated, especially because how many drafts and how many finals were we at when, whether it was Jeff Plush or Amanda Duffy or Cheryl Bailey, yes, there's double-digit groups interested and there's going to be expansion. And then, well, we're not going to expand for next year. And then all of a sudden, at the time you would least expect it, here comes L.A., running into expand but hear me <clears throat> hear me out on this what if u.s soccer just decides they're not going to allocate muis next year i think that game, this could get the courage completely off the hook for having to protect her in the expansion draft i think but if that's true then they don't get to hold her rights why not right? they well, would just have they... to offer a contract when she was ready to come back like right, crystal, but if it... crystal dunn's want... rights were held 
But if you want to, well, there was no expansion draft at the time. What I'm, what I'm saying is like, if you want to keep that player's rights, then you're going to have to protect her rights or leave her rights exposed. Yeah, you might be right about that. I, ho- I mean, you- we, don't, we don't know, right? We haven't seen what the rules are going to be. But would you I, take her? Um, no, but maybe you could do some kind of trade to like, okay, I won't take Mewis's rights if you give me X, Y, or Z, right? But I'm saying if you're Louisville right now and you're starting a team in 2021 and you know that Mewis won't be there until, let's assume the Olympics happen, she probably won't be there until after the Olympics. So do you want to start right. your brand new team as good as... Sam Mewis is. Do you want to start your new team where your possible best player is not going to be there for three quarters of your first season? That's Especially, why. I, that's why I think, I think you can go. Okay, we're going to take Mewis, North Carolina, unless you do, unless we trade for X, Y, Z, and you get something else out of it. You kind of force their hand. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I know the Courage had one trade in the works that was essentially done that would have limited a player they had to protect. And based on what I've seen in this tournament, that trade is not happening this time around. So, I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And also, you have to prepare for two expansion drafts now, possibly more. So, are they tied in together? Wherein, like... You can take if you lose two players in 21, then you don't lose more than one player in 22 or something like that. Like, do they do they tie them together? Even even like does Louisville have to expose players to the expansion draft? Because I don't know any specific examples, but I do know there have been sports with consecutive expansion where the newest team isn't part of the next year team's expansion draft. So. Well, having lived through several expansion drafts following Dynamo coming to Houston, um, no, the newest team still has to give up somebody, partly because of the draft and other ways for them to acquire players. But what I think is is interesting, what we'll see as, as the league grows, is think about it when Dash did their expansion draft in 2014. There were only eight teams to pick from. So at least two teams were going to lose two players, right? Orlando had nine teams to pick from, so only one team was going to lose two players necessarily, right? right. Now you've got um, – of course, now we're kind of back at that same. So Louisville will be picking from nine teams. L.A. will be picking from ten. You know, And, of course, we're assuming that the numbers would be the same, that if you're a playoff team, you protect nine players. If you're a um, non-playoff team, you protect ten, you know, and – Big question mark on all that allocation. So, like I said, so much more for Dan Laletta and I to talk about. But, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat tonight. And, of course, all the great coverage on Equalizer, even those podcasts that you had to struggle through with three back-to-back scoreless draws. Let me say one last thing, because this has been a point of confusion. If the the expansion draft will happen before the next – uh, round of allocations for U.S. soccer. So if you're, war- you know, for, for everyone that's in my Twitter mentions, well, what if player X doesn't get allocated next year? Doesn't matter. The expansion draft's going to happen, and it's going to be based on the 2020 allocation. So I just want to get that nice. out there because that's, that's been a point of confusion. Thank you for that clarification, Dan, and thank you for all the soccer work you do. Absolutely, anytime.
right, time for a little Jen's planning. Short and sweet, this one, um, though perhaps a little crankier than my Jen's planner segments tend to be. Um, my focus this week is I really want NWSL fans to understand that they need to consider CBS basically the same way you would consider any other NWSL sponsor like Secret, Budweiser, Google, Verizon, um, big companies putting big money behind the league. Uh, I have seen over the course of the tournament, a lot of people tweeting, why aren't these games free? Why do I have to pay for CBS all access? This is bullshit. It should be on YouTube for free. Yada, yada. Um, all of this costs money. The league running costs money. We want the players to make more money. It costs money. Getting good streams, better coverage, better graphics, better everything. It all costs money. CBS, like Lifetime before them, and like ESPN briefly did last season, signed uh, a long-term deal with the league, and they've already invested big money into getting these games on. Um, So if you have any issue with paying $6 a month to get not only all access to these games to watch on demand whenever you want, but the rest of CBS's entire catalog, um, then you're not interested in supporting women's sports. So there's my kind of preachy gensplainer topic. If you don't agree, feel free to email me at keeper at keepernotes.com. But I have seen so many people tweet wonderful things of, hey, I appreciate what Budweiser's doing. Hey, I appreciate what Secret's doing. We should appreciate what CBS is doing too. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with our fearless sideline reporter from the NWSL Challenge <laughs> Cup, none other than Marissa Pilla, who survived longer in, in suburban Utah than I had to survive yes. in Florida for the, for the broadcast. So <laughs> so first, you're back home, right? You're, you're all the way I back am. in Philly. I'm back I mean, in have Philly, you had a yeah. Have you had a cheesecake? I, I haven't, not yet. You know, it's just the moment's got to <laughs> call for one, and it just it hasn't been there, so... I'm just enjoying my time back in Philly. Um, you know, it's very different than suburban Utah, as you said. So I'm I'm happy to be back. What did you miss most about being away from home? What was the thing you craved most? Like for me, I was craving queso. Ooh, oh man, I do love queso. Um, I have to say, I ordered pokey out in Utah and it like didn't hit as good as it does out here. It was a little <laughs> suspect. Um, but also I was really missing water ice, um, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I was shocked. I was driving around, um, I think I was going to a training or something and I passed the shopping center and I was shocked to see a Rita's water ice in Utah, (gasps) which is like a regional, like, I I don't know if you you guys had Rita's water ices and I think they call it like Italian ice other places, but Uh it like originated where like in the suburbs where I grew up and it's like a Philly area thing. And I knew there was like places like, you know, down in Florida or whatever, but like out in Utah, I was like, Oh my gosh, they knew they like, I needed that. <laughs> but did, I didn't did go you, like, hit the brakes. Did you hit the brakes and like <laughs> make the tires wheel and go, I'm going there. No, I couldn't because I was like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm very much a rule follower. I'm like, I'm in the bubble right now. And I really don't think waiting in line at Rita's like is bubble qualified. So I was like, when I get home, I'm going to get some Rita's. Yeah. Yeah. Good plan. <laughs> well done. Well done. Well, you survived more than a month um, you yeah. know, in, in the bubble and you were in the 
TV slash production crew bubble separate from yeah. the player bubble. So you weren't at one of the hotels. Where were you? We were in um, the apartment. So whenever you saw a game at Zion Bank Stadium, which is where the majority of our first few games were, across the street, uh, you might have been able to see in certain shots that there was new apartment buildings going up. And that's where I was staying, as well as some members uh, from the league who were involved with the broadcast. And actually, some moms in the league were staying there, too, if they, they wanted to stay outside of the hotel with their children. Um, they could stay in, in those apartments. Um, as well. So that's where I was. Um, so the first couple games were super convenient um, uh, uh, commuting wise because <laughs> I was right yeah, across the street. Yeah. But then, um, yeah, that's kind of where I stayed. Our bubble was, I'm sure the rules were very similar to what the players were abiding by. I got all my food contactlessly delivered. You know, they just left it outside my door. I, I really didn't go anywhere. I was either at a game in my apartment or maybe at a training session. And that's kind of how I existed for the last month. So when you look back on, on these last four plus weeks, I mean, what, what do you think are the memories that are going to stick with you the longest, whether it's a game related menu memory or an interview related memory or, you know, a post game kind of thing. There's just so many. And I think that's what, I think when we were all in it, like in the thick of it, with anything, you don't really, you're not able to have like really perspective on anything because you're so kind of in survival mode of trying to get through this game and being ready for the next game and the next thing and whatever. So now that I've had some time to kind of sit back, I'm like, wow, I just covered a lot of soccer. And I think one of my favorite moments in game um, had to be Ashley Sanchez's like scorpion kick uh, assist off a corner kick and she was standing on the touchline she threw her leg like behind her head basically and just perfectly directed it to Sam Staub who headed in the equalizing goal and it was just bizarre and beautiful and amazing and I think it was very quintessential for really summed up who Washington was in that tournament which was just this young feisty team who was willing to try literally anything um, and I really love that about them. So that was one of my favorite, like, in-game moments. Um, also, Zierra King scoring her first career goal in her first professional game as a game-winning goal. Like, that was amazing. Um, Utah showed a lot of fight uh, throughout the tournament. And, you know, I had a lot of great interviews. Um, one of my favorites on camera was with Rachel Daly. Um, right before, uh, I think it was right before the semifinals, we sat down and talked and I asked yeah. her where, yeah, her fearlessness comes from because you watch her play and you're like, like one, she's just super, super talented. But two, then you see that like drive in her. And I'm always curious, like, where does that come from? How do you tap into that as, as an athlete, as a person? And to be able to kind of pick her brain about that. And one of the a, a great conversation I had, you know, off camera, just on the phone was with Portland Simone Charlie. And she has to be one of the most interesting players um, I've ever really gotten a chance to talk to. And I really wish we were able to sit down with her longer because um, it was one of those interviews where she's giving you so much really unique perspective. And it's just a sideline report almost like wouldn't do it justice. And, you know, talking about her master's degree and, and her um, desire to get a, a PhD in social justice reform and how she, you know, studied and, and wrote uh, thesis papers and stuff on 
how socioeconomic classes are affected in healthcare and how that's all coming together wow. right now. And, you know, we were, we had such an in-depth conversation and she's really one of the most interesting players I've really gotten a chance to talk to. So that was one of those moments where I was like, damn, I wish there was a camera here. I wish we could film this and share it with everybody because I feel almost selfish that I'm holding on to that conversation, just me and her. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, so much behind the scenes stuff that like you can totally see that there should have been, obviously, if it wasn't a pandemic kind of situation that, you know, cameras following you wherever to put a documentary together later, right? Cameras at our facility in Florida, as we're doing all these games, more cameras following around the players, because it's in so many ways, this is a a once in a lifetime experience. Obviously, we hope that the league can do the cup again, but hopefully it won't be within circumstances, you know, like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I, what I thought was interesting that it seemed like the weather was consistent Hot. the entire month. <laughs> it, seemed, it seemed like there was just one overcast day. I almost didn't want to mention the weather on air. Cause I was like, if I do, it'll start raining. You know, but I was like, wow, it, it's Thank just <laughs> 85 degrees hot the whole time. It was, it's a different kind of hot out in Utah. Like, as you said, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from the East Coast. And, um, you know, I'm used to, summertime here is not super enjoyable because it's hot. It's humid. I mean, it's not Houston humid. That's, you guys are on a different planet down there. But, um, you know, today it's like normal summer day is like 75% humidity, 95 degrees. Like, it's just, you don't want to be outside. And um, so that's what I'm used to in summertime and going out in Utah. I'd never been to Utah. And there was, there was one day where it was rainy and I was like, Oh, I didn't prepare for this. And then every other day it was no questions asked, sunny, 90 degrees and almost like 0% humidity. And it was so bizarre for me because I look out the window, I'm like, Oh, it's probably muggy outside. And it's so dry um, to the point where like, I was like, oh, it's nice out. And I was taking walks at like two in the afternoon, like on my off days. And I could see people looking at me like, why is she outside? It's too, too hot. I'm like, yeah, but at least you can breathe. <laughs> like, but I, I will, I will say that altitude is a real thing. Like I didn't know how much of an effect like it would actually have, but like I was feeling it. And I by no means was an ace as active as these athletes were. And I was feeling it like it, it was definitely hard to, you know, get used to after a little bit, but after a week, you realize like, oh, I'm not as thirsty or I'm not cramping as much. So the weather was hot, um, but there was really nothing you could do about it because there was no shade either. So you just had to deal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really noticed, I think we all noticed, uh, you know, when a player would come off the field at halftime, to do a, a quick chat with you. Oh, God. Like, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. I'm oh, like, oh, my gosh. Strange. Yeah. I, I felt so bad, too. I'm like, I think I think Bailey Fife was one of them. I was like, catch your breath. Like, we have 30 seconds. Like, it's okay. in between every every other word was like a gasp for air because it was, they're, one, they're working incredibly hard. And two, it's just, it's so hot. And then three, they were playing on turf. So, you know, it's five to 10 degrees hotter, even on top of the turf. So it was a lot. And then after our post-game interviews were about four or five minutes after the final whistle, by the time we got them around. So 
I think they were more like, okay, great. And I would tell them, I'm like, you have five minutes, like go get water, go sit down, go relax, relax. Um, yeah. catch your breath. Um, so yeah, the weather, I think, I don't know if it caught people by surprise, but it was definitely hotter than I had expected. Well, and the last three um, NWSL drafts, you've been a part, you know, part of the draft broadcast with me and Jordan and, and Lori yeah. Lindsay. Um, and last year you got to do some sideline reporting for NWSL. This is the first time where you had, I mean, extended, you know, every game for a month. Yeah. You're right there. <laughs> so, so do you feel, was it a relief to go like, hey, I did the last three drafts. I know all these players. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, you know, that and that I covered the league last year so in depth, like it definitely gave me a sense of, you know, good starting off point. But you then at a certain point, you too, you have to realize like this schedule is so demanding um, because yes. I have to be ready for every single game and every single team. And the matchups change, like how players and teams want to approach. So you can't just rely on maybe what they did last game. And it was just a lot. Like I felt like I need on my days off. It was like, I just had to dump my brain out of any information pertaining to soccer <laughs> and just like get it out of my head just so I could like reset. Cause the more you try to cram information in, I feel like the less you're able to retain it after a while. So like days off, I would just try to really, really clear my head and just get set for and, and approach it like a whole new game, a whole new um, situation. It reminded me a little bit of my experience in, in Moscow two summers ago, you know, doing research for, for the World Cup where that group stage where it was every day, yeah. you know, three three games. And here there were no more than two a day, but having to do the research and then beyond the games where, like you were saying, like having to clear your head where it's like, okay, I just finished doing notes for Sky Blue versus North Carolina, but the game I'm calling is... yeah. Portland rain. So it's just kind of like, okay, focus, focus. <laughs> focus. Yes. Yeah. And to have really. those back to back game days, right? Like, I remember we were all very excited in the production crew when we got to the semifinals, knowing that when the semifinals were over that Wednesday, we weren't all coming back Thursday morning to do it again. <laughs> right. Because yeah. it just it really does wear you down. It's thrilling and it's exciting. And at the end of oh, it, you're yeah, like, for sure. Oh, yeah yeah it's it's a slog it it can't go on much more than a month just just like the world cup it's like it's so great for that month and then afterwards it's like uh recovery time yeah i I can't imagine i can't imagine what the players feel like oh god yeah um that they've been in that bubble and far away from friends and family and expending that energy right like just a whole yeah it's just it's a whole new level I think of of exhaustion that I don't think anybody really could relate to because I would ask a couple different players like you know players who played for in the like for the U.S. women's national team or other national teams and you know players who haven't and and I say like you know how how are you handling this situation and a lot of national team players were saying you know like it does remind me of camp you know, but it also like during that time, like I can leave if I want, I can go get my nails done. I can go take a hike. I can go to a restaurant if I wanted to, but like here you can't. And I think that the bubble aspect on top of 
how grueling a tournament can be mentally and physically, like changed a lot for a lot of players, even if they were used to playing in tournaments or having that experience, this was a whole new brand, brand new experience for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And, and that's what I loved about it. Right. Like, it doesn't matter that you can put an asterisk by this and say, well, it was this weird year with this cup. Yeah. You know, like it, every, I think in some ways it was the great equalizer because For no sure. one would have experienced dealing with this before and having a shorter preseason and all that time in lockdown. Um, I really felt for the new coaches more than anything, mostly for Reed Van Steedy because he hadn't even coached in NWSL before like Craig Harrington. Yeah at least been an assistant coach but it's just like I that's why I like I wouldn't call any game an upset right because this this was also new and I think that's what made it so exciting to watch so last question for you um you know what kind of fun feedback comments have you gotten because obviously being on on CBS and CBS Sports you know this got more exposure for the league which of course means more exposure for, you know, you and Lori Lindsay and Mike Watts and all that, that kind of stuff. I mean, have you had some marriage proposals or some really, <laughs> bizarre, or some really bizarre, like, I can't believe you said that. Or, you know, I saw um, one, one fan, fan said, is it Pilla or Pia, which I thought was really funny. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I get that question a lot. <laughs> it's Pilla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, yeah. What are your, your favorite kind of social media takeaways from this? Um, you know, everybody on social media has been so much fun and that kind of added to, you know, keeping it light. Cause sometimes when you're in the thick of it with something, you know, as demanding as, as this tournament has been, like you lose sight of like, this is sports. It's supposed to be fun. We're all doing this because we love this game and we want to cover it and do it like due diligence on it. So I love that, you know, women's soccer fans love to keep it fun on, on social media. Um, I have seen a lot of people commenting about my jumpsuits. Uh, the the quantity of jumpsuits that I own, <laughs> and um, and I just gotta say they're they're the most conducive to sideline reporting. You know, you look nice, but they're still pants. Dresses are a little hard sometimes. Um, somebody commented on how they were wondering how my makeup stayed on during the heat. And I just have to say, it was a lot of powder and a lot of layering. <laughs> so that, that is if anybody's so curious, awesome. It was a lot of powder um, to keep all that in place. And it took forever to get off at the end of the day. <laughs> that that reminds me of the first dash game we had after the 2015 World Cup final. They actually gave us a whole live 30-minute pregame uh, to do that was shown on local TV and on YouTube. And But, of course, you know, Houston's so hot. It's so humid. We have the big yeah. windows open in the broadcast booth. I remember people tweeting, she's melting. She's melting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It takes a lot to get your makeup to stay in like 90 degree weather after wearing a mask. So, you know, my makeup was the true MVP of the (laughs) sidelines. Well, Marissa, thank you for all your hard work on the tournament and and sacrificing yourself for a whole month in suburban Utah. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I hope you feel it was worth it. Oh, of course. I mean, it was. it's such an honor to just cover the league in general just because I'm a huge fan of, of this game and, and what these athletes are able to do. And, um, and two, to kind of be part of 
the history in a way, the return of team sports in the U.S., like that's a big deal. And the fact that we did it, uh, you know, without anybody getting sick or, or anything, and it just makes me feel proud to be part of. So I was glad I could be there and, and hopefully add something uh, to the broadcast that people enjoyed. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. And of course, this back four is all about soccer merch, most of it Dash related. But hey, they won a championship, so deal with it. First off, nwslshop.com is open, offers offers international shipping, challenge cut merchandise, a championship tee for the Dash. Of course, all clubs have their own online stores. So that's the next part of the back four, shop.houston-.com. They have their own championship t-shirt design. Number three, nwcellplayers.com. They are offering premium masks for sale, benefiting COVID relief workers. They're also selling a League of Women t-shirt that benefits the Players Association itself. And this Players Association represents every player in NWSL who is not a member of the U.S. national team. And then last, but certainly not least, uh, if you haven't checked out my NWSL almanac, give it a look at keepernotes.com. There's also a Dash-specific almanac, And anyone who buys a Dash Almanac right now will get a free PDF update featuring Challenge Cup lineups, stats, and photos. So that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Big thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, as well as IcarusFC.com. And as always, many, many thanks to Sean and the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.